friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Hopefully, we have another great show for you today. We have good guests. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess, Ashley McGuire, Father Dave Pivanka, who's the president of Franciscan University about gender ideology and his great piece in USA Today. Um, A very interesting piece in USA Today titled... The body matters. That's why, as university president, I'm concerned for my female athletes. But first, I'm here with my co-hostesses Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire of the Catholic Association to discuss the biggest leak, perhaps, in the history of leaks. The Supreme Court Justice's opinion leaked months before it's supposed to be made public and and the case decided. So we're watching uh, heads explode (laughs) on the right and on the left. Things are getting very heated up. People are getting very upset out there because the the opinion by Justice Alito, which um, we should say may change very much between now and when it comes out at the end of May or perhaps in June, it is a wonderful win for the pro-life community if it does in fact stay that way. So what, what were your reactions, ladies, when you saw this crazy leak story? Well, Ashley, you go first. You have a fantastic piece in USA Today this week commenting on it, so share that with us. Well, it's funny because I had written a piece that I was trying to place already about basically trying to speak to the justices to make the point that the country's already kind of in a post-row. We're kind of a post-row America already because you're seeing states basically prepare for what they see, you know, like writing on the wall. It's almost as if they all understood this was coming and everybody's kind of doing what overturning Roe v. Wade would actually mean, which is, um, you know, states through their elected representatives, voters, passing the laws that represent the types of protections um, and abortion laws that they want to see in their states. And you have everywhere from, you know, uh, the state of Texas, where abortion has basically been outlawed after uh, heartbeat or, you know, as we're told to call it, cardiac activity can be detected and has been that way since September, um, all the way to Colorado, my home state, which just passed it, passed a terribly extreme abortion law that allows it for any reason up until the moment before birth. But my point is that I was writing this article thinking and knowing that this is the time when the justices are finalizing their opinions and their decisions. This is like the 11th hour for the Supreme Court, even though wouldn't have heard the decision for, you know, weeks or months to come. So um, on the one hand, I was both not surprised that this was already written and basically votes had been cast, but on the other hand, was pretty shocked. And as I wrote in my article, um, because shocked and not shocked. Shocked because it's such an extraordinary breach of ethics, but not shocked because for pro-abortion people, this is the desperation is reaching epic proportions to the point that they're willing to do totally corrupt things to try and exert pressure on judges and justices to change their minds. But Ashley, do you think that they believe what they're saying when they say that this is the end of abortion, period, that women will be completely at the mercy of their reproductive faculties? The rhetoric is so extreme. And what you're describing is a time Uh, a post-Roe America where it goes back to the states and people make decisions based on modern science on the way that they feel today, not in 1973 or later on when Casey was decided, the way that the world is today, which is we're in a very different world than we were in 1973. And it seems to me that it's just not that radical what's going to happen when Roe falls, which it looks like it will. Right. You know, I've seen all three seasons of The Handmaid's Tale and I've read the book. And so I laugh when I see the, the handmaids walking around like this is what we're, you know, it's very histrionic. Although on the one hand, you can't 
can't blame people who haven't followed the issue closely for thinking that because if you read the way the media talks about this, the way politicians talk about it, they do talk about it in ways that are very deceptive, false, they lie, and they say things like women will never have bodily autonomy ever again. But no, you're absolutely right that, you know, again, if you go back to the state of Texas, which is the second most populous state in the country, second or third, and you've had abortion basically illegal from the moment when a woman knows she's pregnant and the sky hasn't fallen. And it shows that, you know, that's just one state. But if you actually poll people, first of all, as to whether or not they support you know, restrictions on abortion in the second and third trimester, they overwhelmingly do. And I think it's because people have been told for almost 50 years that overturning Roe v. Wade means no more abortion is gone forever from this country. And they're picturing the back alley abortion, the coat hanger, these horrors that have been repeated over and over again. That's what they picture in their minds. Right. They picture in their minds the kinds of abortion clinics um, that 50 years of unregulated or poorly regulated abortion clinics actually look like. Yeah. <laughs> they're picturing like, the kind of Kermit Gosnell world that they have helped facilitate with their extremism and their sort of thuggish tactics in terms of you know lobbying and pressure. Right. Just to underscore what you're saying, Ashley, the sky is falling rhetoric is definitely part of the strategy of the left. But for the average person in the middle, number one, I saw an interesting quote from a Democratic strategist today saying that uh, in the November elections, this probably won't even be that much of a political earthquake because most people are just concerned about gas prices and inflation and what their kids are being taught in school. Those are the real top polling issues. But, you know, of course you have people will be motivated on both sides of this issue. So it does have an election impact, but the sky is falling rhetoric is really just part of the strategy of the other side. And on the polling, again, it I think there's ignorance of sort of the average person because the average person totally lacks knowledge about what Roe actually does. People are not aware that Roe versus Wade actually legalizes abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. And then people also don't know what overturning Roe would do, that it would just turn it back to the states, that at least half of the states will probably continue legal abortion. And even in states where abortion laws will protect unborn children, mail order abortions will become very common. And this is very much the strategy of the abortion lobby to make mail order telemedicine abortions routine. So while you have most people opposing most abortions, because most abortions are done for socioeconomic reasons, people just have such a depth of misunderstanding about what Roe actually does and what overturning Roe would do. And Americans' actual position is a whole lot more nuanced than the media hysteria would tell you. One thing that surprises Americans when you tell them is that America is on the extreme radical side of abortion permissiveness when compared to the rest of the world. My experience has been that people don't don't know this unless they're sort of deep in the weeds <laughs> like we are. They really think that America is probably a very conservative place uh, abortion-wise when it's simply not. When we're in the same horrible category as North Korea and Russia and uh, Cuba and, and bad actors like that where abortion is just a form of birth control and no one has any and no one has any care for the dignity of, of small humans uh, which is unfortunately the case under Roe. I want to ask you either of you Ashley or Maureen about the November elections. My husband when he saw when he heard this leak he said it's going to be a bloodbath you know they're going to be 24 hour a day singing on the you know crying and and being hysterical on on the media and people really believing that women are going back to the back alley. No, I would agree with Maureen that it, that's just not true. I think the electoral impact is going to be minimal. I mean, for example, look at in September of last year, Texas sideswiped the country with this um, passage of this bill that basically made abortion illegal after six weeks. And, and then it was the Supreme Court declined to block it. Like two months later, Virginia, a blue state, once purple turned blue state, knowing full well, A, that um, Glenn Youngkin was an ardently pro-life, uh, let's overturn Roe v. Wade candidate, and having seen that actually this stuff can get kind of real quickly, overwhelmingly elect uh, a red legislature and a Republican governor. To me, that suggests that those voters 
as Maureen said, we're concerned about the fallout of the pandemic, uh, concerned about the housing market, you know, unaffordability of housing. What in the heck are my kids being taught in school? And so that to me shows that, you know, that coming right on the heels of what happened in Texas shows voters are just not swayed by that. And so I don't think Republicans need to worry. And, you know, sort of my hope is that maybe even some of these pro-life Democrats who we know in their hearts uh, really do believe that abortion is wrong will not be afraid to defend pro-life legislation. And there's going to be a lot because this will go back to the states, local more local elected officials will have a lot more say on the issue. And so my hope is that they'll sort of lean into pro-life views. I'd love to delve into the opinion, the draft opinion. Like you said, Gracie, it's still just a draft and it can and will change before we get a final decision. But Gracie, you, along with two other female doctors, filed a brief in this case. And I was reading through the draft opinion and I see that Alito refers on page 34 to opponents of Roe claim that many people now have an appreciation of fetal life that when prospective parents who want to have a child view a sonogram, they typically have no doubt that what they see is their daughter or son. Hmm. And I heard little echoes of your brief there. Gracie, can you just remind our listeners about what you talked about in terms of advances in ultrasound since 1973? And you just had such a beautiful description of how you see your little patients on these ultrasounds. So I just want to remind our viewers of that if you don't mind recounting that for us. Well, first of all, you're giving me a tremendous thrill to think that maybe <laughs> Justice Alito and some of the other justices actually read the brief. There's so many briefs. And I do think that our brief, my gosh, and if, if I think that I was I w- that we were able to move the dial a little bit, that's so exciting. But I do think that our brief was was unique. It had images of, of unborn babies, which to me are extremely compelling because that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. And to me, these are very real patients. And that's what I wanted to, that's what we wanted to express, three female doctors. I'm a radiologist, an OBGYN, and a, and a neonatologist. We wanted to express to the court, these are not, you know, I hate that term blobs of cells, but these are not sort of side effects of humanity. These are not just uh, collections of material. These are actual patients that, that we care for. They're endearing to us, and, and they are endearing to um, to Americans in general because back in 1973 nobody knew what a what an unborn baby looked like whether on ultrasound or MRI but now we all know and we've seen the humanity of the fetus all of us have been exposed to it through ultrasound and other things that have changed in the science that we alluded to on our brief is an understanding of fetal pain which Alito also at in, at some point in the brief also um, alludes to so some of these procedures that are being allowed in states like Colorado that you mentioned Ashley are absolutely barbaric Barrack, that things that you wouldn't do to a puppy. I mean, people would throw themselves in front of a moving train to stop these kinds of procedures being done on dogs, but they're being done to, to human beings that feel pain. And they will be done in Colorado. And, and it's, it's, it's really sad to think about that. And then another thing that we talked about was fetal surgery. We talked about that in our brief about how babies of the same age that, that are allowed to be aborted by Roe v. Wade without anesthesia, these same babies are being pulled out of their mothers, operated on with anesthesia, and then placed back to grow. I mean, we just, since 1973, we have developed a completely different relationship to unborn human life, and our laws ought to reflect that relationship because we have a different, our, our feelings are different, our understanding is different, and, and our laws should reflect this. Why should we keep living under this crazy, frozen-in-time law from 1973, it makes no sense. On that point, Ashley, I'd love to get your reflections on this because Justice Alito also refers to another brief written by Helen Alvarez and uh, Erica Bakiaki, two guests that have come on our show to speak about their brief, addressing the reliance argument that women need abortion to be, you know, to achieve equality and to have success. And Justice Alito refers to this brief on page 61, the brief of women scholars and professionals. And he says in another place on page 33, he talks about Americans who believe that abortion should be restricted, press countervailing arguments about modern development. They note that attitudes about the pregnancy of unmarried women have changed drastically 
statistically that federal and state laws ban discrimination on the basis of pregnancy. Leave for pregnancy and childbirth are now guaranteed by law in many cases. Costs of medical care associated with pregnancy are covered by insurance. And he goes on and on about how so many of our laws have changed since 1973 and that that is attributable to women's equality and success rather than this reliance on abortion. And actually, I know you've written a lot about women's flourishing and why women don't need to rely upon abortion for their success. Yeah, well, the reliance argument was a total... I'm so glad... What I so appreciate about the opinion, the draft opinion, was its clarity and directness and that he takes head on every single argument, the main arguments that have been used to prop up Roe v. Wade and, and then subsequently Planned Parenthood v. Casey and basically obliterates them. And Planned Parenthood v. Casey was the case where Sandra Day O'Connor was the one who put out this idea that we've gotten too accustomed and used to abortion society. It would be too much upheaval to get rid of it or to overturn Roe and return it to the states. And that, I think, is the thing that people in their minds are most locked in on. They're like, well, this is our society. If we undo this, it's all going to fall apart and we're going to go, you know, back to Handmaid's Tale or 19 whatever. And it's just not true. And it's totally, he's totally right that, you know, you see more women choosing to keep their babies than ever before or place them for adoption. Um, The stigma on single motherhood out of wedlock pregnancy has changed. And, you know, it's really basically just Hollywood that's left. It seems like they're making this argument that I could not have succeeded in what I did if I hadn't had the abortion. And even that has kind of an icky paternalistic feel. And to me, what that gets to is this idea that we have to get rid of, which is that women can only... Um, achieve things and be equal with men if we basically make our bodies like men, which is sterilize them and or, you know, eliminate the consequences of sex, which women disproportionately bear. And so I'm encouraged to see that I think more and more women, um, and this is not just religious, it's become kind of like a neo-feminist thing for millennials who are kind of like, no, I'm pretty sure I can both be a mom and flourish, whether that's, you know, if it's sort of an unintended or unexpected pregnancy that's out of wedlock, in wedlock. And that, I think, is what women who are fearful right now most need to hear. And also where the pro-life community has done an extraordinary job of stepping up to say, like, we'll be here to meet you and, you know, where we're going to have to do a lot more of in, in, in the coming years. Because, you know, it is true that, this will have sort of an immediate effect for a lot of people. You know, there will be states where if you're a teenage girl, getting an abortion does not no longer, will no longer mean your gross boyfriend, you know, driving you 30 minutes down the road to quietly get rid of. It's going to require a lot more um, community support and involvement. But I think that the country is ready for that and that we'll be able to meet the time. I don't know if I'm being cynical, but when I see it so much uh, ferocious opposition to, to regulating abortion, what it makes me think of, you're talking about this gross boyfriend, it makes me think that what people are really trying to preserve, and, and many unscrupulous men especially, is the hookup culture. Because a, a place where abortion is, is more difficult to obtain, which wouldn't be Colorado, <laughs> as you mentioned, Ashley, um, a, a country where abortion is not just something that's easily and uh, easy and cheap down the street, um, is a place where the hookup culture can't, can't flourish. Because a hookup culture is, has to be backstopped by easy and cheap and frequent abortion. So then I'm thinking, well, who's involved in this hookup culture? Well, unfortunately, a lot of people. A lot of people are involved in it. I mean, I, I don't know them personally, I don't think. But, you know, I see it on, I see that there's, there's all these apps, dating apps, and I see it on TV. And I know that colleges are very, um, are places where young people are involved very heavily in in sort of random sexual activity. So what do you think about that, Maureen? You know, in I, I think you hit the nail on the head in many respects. And in polling, most polls over time have shown, if you look at the crosstabs, that the, the most pro-choice demographic tends to be young men, say mm-hmm. ages, you know, roughly 18 to 35 or something like that. So, and I was thinking about that this morning as I was watching some of the hysterical media coverage. This morning, I was watching a female reporter 
really, I mean, she was on the verge of tears. It, I mean, it was quite unprofessional, her coverage. Um, but, but she was nearly in tears and she was, you know, talking about what this does to women. And then she said, and also for men who might want to have sex with them. And I thought, yep, that's, you know, tends mm-hmm. to be the most pro-choice demographic, um, you know, in, in the polling because it's men who don't want the responsibility of the children who might be conceived as a result of that relationship. And uh, Ashley also mentioned Hollywood. I know you've written about Harvey Weinstein and sort of the Hollywood cover-up of these things, which also relies on abortion culture. Yeah, because people like Harvey Weinstein, you know, uh, uh, I was going to say people like Harvey Weinstein don't want their starlet, you know, out of commission for nine months, right? And then having to fix her, <laughs> to fix her her uh, her stretch marks so she can get back on the on the naked uh, stage for the for the cameras we we've been living in this world where women bear like you said the disproportionate burden of reproduction but what they're really bearing is a disproportionate burden of a hookup culture with where where sex is is ubiquitous and and it's the price of entry for like normal life normal dating Women are bearing the cost, and I I see a post-Roe world as a place where maybe women can start regaining that protection where they can say, you know, this kind of behavior is not good for me. You know, what you want from me is not good for me. All All the ways that Hollywood lies to me and the culture lies to me doesn't erase the fact that if I'm pregnant, if I find myself to be pregnant in, in three weeks, you know, things really come to a, a grinding halt in my life. Yeah, and, you know, let's be honest that abortion didn't change anything about women bearing the disproportionate no. uh, ramifications. It just internalized them. You know, it's either, um, you know, they're still the one who has to go through the physical trauma of it and then bear the scar the rest of their lives. Um, and so I do, I do think that this is actually kind of like a, a woman's power moment because, you know, I saw somebody post a, something on social media. This is from a friend who's pro-choice and she was like, guys, if you think this doesn't affect you, alimony payments, you know, typically start at a fourth of what you take home. And, and it's like, exactly. Wow. I mean, mm-hmm. so, you know, men are going to have to think twice before they use women for sex. And I think it was actually Janet Yellen, the secretary of the treasury who once wrote that nobody stood to gain more than men from the legalization of abortion because it allowed them to use women and then discard them um, without having to take any responsibility for what that entailed. And so I, I do think that certainly abortion is not going to be gone from our country, but I, I do think that it, it may have a sort of chilling effect on the hookup culture and especially the ability of men to take advantage of women, whether it's in the hookup culture or actual um, men who are trafficking women and relied on mm-hmm. um, abortion as a way to traffic minor girls um, and then, you know, get rid of the quote-unquote consequences. How about the viability standard that Alito uh, takes apart so well? I know, Gracie, from your medical perspective, you've written about that, um, about how the viability standard from Casey is really so arbitrary and just nonsensical uh, in terms of abortion policy. And uh, Alito has a line that's, you know, almost funny. He talks about how uh, one of the arbitrary things about using viability as the standard is that some women live near a level three neonatal intensive care unit that can take care of a very premature baby. Other women may live in a rural area without access to any good health care. So how could the location of the woman uh, be a meaningful legal line for the life of the fetus? Yeah, you know, Alito um, does a fabulous job taking down the viability argument. And yes, how can personhood, which um, if you... Uh, think about it the way that he's talking about it. Personhood meaning the point at which a human being attains the right to be protected in the law from being arbitrarily killed, right? That's really what when people say, well, the fetus is not a person. They're saying, well, the fetus is not the kind of human being that shouldn't be killed electively, right? Um, So he says, well, how there's no logical, ethical way to to, um, connect viability with personhood because there's not some magical line of viability. Viability has to do with geography, as you said. Viability has to do with how good the local ICU is, the neonatal ICU in your community. 
Um, it has to do with how profession, how good your doctor is, and the nurses around him, and it has to do with um, things that you know have that you just can't pinpoint and you can't draw a line under. So how can personhood be so so um, so arbitrary? It makes no sense. Um, so Alito really does a great job with with viability, and and it's interesting because I I listened to the arguments uh, before the Supreme Court some months ago when the court when the case was argued and the other side was really focused on viability they said we need to keep the viability standard it's the only logical standard so how wonderful that alito you know goes right to the heart of the matter and says well what's it matter if a baby's 22 weeks old or 23 weeks old or 28 weeks old right he even mentions he has some footnotes he says well back in you know in the early 1900s viability was 37 weeks what does that mean those babies were not persons. Uh, you know, a 28-week-old baby was not a person in, in 1902, but is a person today? No. It's it's uh, wonderful how he dissects philosophically that idea. I, I really don't know how how people stand up against all those philosophical arguments. I really think they're just they're just desperate and and wanting the, uh, wanting a status quo to remain just because they can't imagine anything better. But I think America's a much better place than Roe v. Wade America. Yeah, it's probably coming from a place of fear. And again, who can blame them because of all the fear-mongering from the press and, and the abortion rights movement over the last several decades. But, but I, I agree, Gracie, that I think that you know we're, we're up to the task of living in a post-Roe America, and we're probably more ready than we've ever been to to meet the challenge of, of helping women to, you know, choose life and, and still flourish as women themselves. And, and really the debate and the pro-life movement is just beginning in a, in a very real sense, because now we have to win the debate and we have to serve women in need, the growing need that women will have. So we have our work cut out for us. Mm-hmm. And, um, Certainly, there's a real spiritual battle, and we all need to be on our knees. Certainly. And um, we have all our listeners along with us in this great quest to, to make a post-Roe America a really a beautiful place that, that reflects the, um, the beautiful, compassionate hearts that fill the United States. I, really, I believe in the United States. I believe in its people, and, and I think that we can, we're better than Roe, and we're going we're gonna to show the whole world what a great place a post-Roe America is. So thank you, ladies, for joining me today. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, Father Dave. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, we can't thank you enough for giving us some of your precious time. You have a very important position, and I'm sure that every second of your day is accounted for as president (laughs) of... Franciscan University. It must be very hard to get a moment, but but oh, you're giving us. It really is. Oh, thank you. You're giving us some of your moments, and really, we wanted to talk to you because you wrote um, a very interesting piece in USA Today, titled "The Body Matters." That's why, as university president, I'm concerned for my female athletes. Now, we we thought that as a university president, you are on the front lines of this Mack truck of gender ideology, which is mowing down everything in front of it, but especially in, in academia and in schooling for young people. And so we were really interested in your take. Well, you're right. It is. Uh, it seems to be a train that's moving, and honestly, it's just running over over people. In this particular situation, I think it's uh, running over women. And and it's interesting. I mean, the story is, I tell the story of one of our female athletes here at the Franciscan University, and she's just a phenomenal athlete. And I was just watching her one day, and she was training, and and just began to wonder, you know, what's this going to look like in another couple of years? There are situations of biological men who are uh, participating in in female sports, and it just there's just something wrong with it. But but actually, honestly, truth be told, uh, she and I first started talking about this over a year ago about saying something and and writing something. And I'm going to be very honest with you: is I was concerned 
for her is that we live in a world that's so volatile and you're, you're right. That train is going down the track and then, and it'll run over whoever gets in the way. And I was honestly concerned about what would it look like for her to compete? Would, would people do things to her? Would people say things to her? And, and because boy, you can't, you can't disagree with that. You can't hold another opinion on this topic or you're the enemy and, and they'll do whatever they need to do to, to try to silence them. And, and, and at the end of the story is, is her looking, I always say looking up at me because she's about five foot nothing. Uh, and she says to me, Father Dave, we have to say something. Some things are more important than racing. And, and that's why when this whole situation came out with the athlete from Penn, it seemed to me, all right, this is this is the time that we need to say something. So that's why we did. But Father, um, you bring up a point about being canceled and being aggressed for expressing an opinion that doesn't go along with um, the current ideologies. But what about, Are you wor- does she worry about her life after competition, how she can get a job if she becomes notorious? Because this is what I'm hearing from uh, young people like I, I have one, co- I have one, one of my five children is in college now. He says people are very afraid for their future if they get blackballed in college or talked about in college for being um, conservative in any way. Right, right. Well, and again, her her statement was, we need to stand up. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a girl, it's just honestly, again, she's one of the top athletes in the country. And this is simply consistent with who she is. And that's she's tough. She's scrappy. She's not afraid to, to work and get dirty and pull up her sleeves and 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 she just sees this fight as a part of it. And my hope, honestly, is it is that it really doesn't become a fight for her. You know, it's it's not. Unfortunately, it's not her fight. She's just placed. She's been placed in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. So. Father, I've written a book about this, um, and you know, I devoted an extensive section to it about women's sports. And this was five years ago, and it's been incredible to see how quickly this has all accelerated and. In your article, you, you know, make the point that Title IX was designed to protect women's sports and to create a space where women can, you know, compete and showcase their skills against other women. And so, you know, this is really showing how gender ideology especially hurts women. Um, and I also thought you did a great job in your piece of, you know, pointing out the need to be sympathetic to people who are truly experiencing genuine confusion and who couldn't in this crazy culture. Um, Are you seeing this play out on your campus in ways other than sports or, or is it mostly an athletics issue? Well, at the moment it's across, it's not just, well, first off, I would say bigger picture. It's the identity of the human person. And that's really what I want to try to get across is, is the human person is beautiful. Uh, It should be honored. It should be, we should be awed by that. And it's not just the gender identity where the attack on the human person is taking place. I mean, today with all that's taking place with the abortion Roe versus Wade, there's always, you know, for decades, there's been an attack on the human person. And, and it's not just gender identity. It's what a person should look like. And so we're seeing that across the board. Um, Are there, uh, Athletes here that have have been a part of this because they're competing, yes, um, yes, that they've competed against other athletes who are transgendered athletes. Do we have young people who are wrestling with who are they? One of the things I've, I've shared a lot recently is, you know, when we were younger, we asked the question, "Who am I?" But the kids are asking the question, "What am I?" And that's a fundamental different question that it, that relates to them trying to be comfortable with who they are and who it is that God's created them to be. So, yes, our, our kids are walking out of situations in their high schools and in their communities where they're this is in their front of them it's constantly bombarding them and yes we have kids that are wrestling with this and asking the questions and and my hope and my prayer honestly is that is that we can help them work through this and help them walk through this and wrestle with it where the vast majority of people in our culture today says oh you have a question well here's your solution you know take these take this medicine or believe this thing that's I believe is ultimately a lie. So we're we're trying to do our best to equip our young people and our students to really to be able to deal with this and reconcile who they are and who God created them to be. Father, Father, what I find uh, when when I'm when I talk to young people, which I do very very often on this topic. Um, in fact, when we finish here, I'm going to go teach a CCD class <laughs> exactly on this topic for for young teens. And um, what what I'm finding when I speak to them is that there's this opposition between the truth 
for instance, that a man cannot become a woman by simply declaring himself a woman or by doing any kind of hormonal or surgical alteration. That's the truth that I think all of us can agree on. And then there is the, the this, this deep necessity that's been instilled in everyone to never hurt anyone's feelings. And and that's what I, that's the feedback I'm getting from students, from young people who say, sure. I can understand that it's not true that a man can become a woman and that I can and I can see that it's unjust that a man swimmer should swim against women and demolish them and call himself a woman at the same time but I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings what would you say to that to young people well it's it and and that's where this really becomes problematic is that those two things are ultimately inconsistent that that you're not going to be able to speak the truth and people are people are going to be offended by the truth I, I gave a talk on campus the other night the scripture last Thursday, maybe it was Wednesday, was from John. It's a, it's a famous John 3 where for God to love the world. But John goes on to say that people preferred the dark. Mm-hmm. And, and that, unfortunately, that's still the case. So that honestly, as, as I wrestled with this, that's one of the things that I've, I've struggled with is that I know that when I wrote that article and put it out, that there are people that were going to be hurt by it. And I think I think I wrote it fairly sensitively, but I still know that there were going to be people hurt by it. And that's one of the things that some of the comments that people have made. It's like, well, why is Father Dave entering into this dialogue? You know, why is Francisco University even commenting on this? Well, because, as you stated earlier, that, that there are some things that are true. And, and as, as Allison said, some things that are worth fighting for and just believe that the time was now that we needed to ultimately say something. And, and just if I may, at that moment, because one of the things that I'm, I'm joking my next op-ed piece is going to be writing an op-ed piece on writing an op-ed piece because to be able to have that printed in USA Today was, you know, a major undertaking. And, and some of the things that were required was some of the language. Like if you'll notice, USA Today has a policy that you cannot use the word biological male. They find that offensive. So we had to be able to, to work with USA Today to even get that article published. But it, it speaks to a population of people that simply doesn't have ears to hear. You know, if the word biological male is offensive, then what are we doing? We have we have to be able to speak the truth. And, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I feel like, like Allison has been bullied, and I feel like some of the people that have been speaking out is have been bullied. But we live in a world in an age that you're right, you can't speak out, you can't say something. And if you if you do, you're you're a bully, you're intolerant, you're a bigot, you're a homophobic, you're all of those things that, that label us. And by labeling us trying to shut off the discussion. And I mean one of the points I come to is 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 this inability to disagree. Now your point is well taken that if we don't believe things are true or if I believe I am the, the determining factor of what's true, that's why these issues become so volatile is that we're ultimately challenging them. We're not challenging an objective reality. We're, we're challenging them. And that's part of the problem that we have, I think, in this whole conversation. Shocking to hear that they won't allow the use of the expression biological male. And yet I shouldn't be shocked because I've recently seen things like religious freedom and scare quotes. So we are in strange times indeed. Father, you know, as a Catholic priest, you are more well-versed than most in terms of the richness that the church has to offer when it comes to complementarity of the sexes and, and thinking, you know, the thinking the church has put into this. Um, And I have to say as a convert, it was reading theology of the body that really was something that drew me in. And I think there's a sense that there's a fear that speaking truthfully repels people, but is it your experience that speaking the truth can also draw people in? And I'm curious to know, you know, apart from you writing a very brave piece in USA Today, what else is your university doing to sort of be both, you know, gentle but courageous on this matter and, and other difficult matters of truth? I, I appreciate your comment on theology of the body, because I think if you read that piece, you realize that you know, while I didn't come out and say John Paul II, theology of the body, it's at the heart of it. The body actually does matter. The human body communicates just by its its physicalness. So a human male and a human female communicate differently just because an individual's mind is telling them something, the body still communicates. And, and that's one of the things I was trying to get across, that the body matters. I mean, at the university, that that we've made a commitment time and time again, and, and I told the students when I preached on this topic Friday night that 
that we are going to be faithful to the gospel and we're going to be faithful to the teachings of the church and we're going to communicate those things. And if that puts us at odds with culture, so be it. Now, I also have said that St. Francis, some of the things that he did in his time put him at odds. So that we're going to do it with charity and we're going to do it with humility, but we are going to speak the truth. And and I think the, the mandate of the gospel demands that we do that. And but again, I, I don't. Again, the scripture reminds us that the, that the world hated him first, and the scripture reminds us that things that Jesus said. And scriptures come up and they said, "What you said offended us." So some of the things we do and some of the things we say are going to offend people. We need to do our best to do it in charity and and to recognize you know the human person in front of us. But sometimes it demands that we speak out. And, and the university's been doing that on pro-life issues. We've been doing it on pro-family issues. We've been doing it on you know issues related to the poor and access to education. So th- this one is is a little bit more controversial, a little bit more inflamed, but. Uh, yeah, I just think it's what the Lord wants us to do, to be able to speak to the things that are, are objectively true. And to the degree that we're communicating that, ultimately, my hope is that it leads the individual to the source of that truth, right? Not just to an argument or not just to a well-written piece, but to the source of truth that ultimately will bring greater clarity and peace to this whole issue. Father, you've been the president of the university since 2019, um, so it's been a very tumultuous and strange couple of years on many yes, fronts. It has. Yes, it <laughs> what have been some of the other top challenges that you've had to deal with, or, or what are some of your other sort of greatest concerns or, or even triumphs um, over the last couple of years and even looking into the future? Yeah, well, sure. I, th- I think obviously the the COVID crisis and COVID situation was something uh, that that's been unbelievably challenging. The image that I've used it's it's like trying to juggle sand. But I, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are. But one of the things that we did at Francis University was the the fall semester of 2020 when everybody was trying to figure out. You know, COVID was still re- relatively new. What were we going to do? Francis University made a decision to invite all new students, all freshman students, to the university uh, tuition free because there was a real step in faith at that time. People just didn't know what this was going to look like. So I said that, you know, we're in, we're making a step in faith that everything's going to go okay and, and work out all right. So we invited the students to make that with us. And, and it was received, as you can imagine, wonderfully that we've got the most students we've ever had on campus right now. But I think part of that was an uh, invitation to not be consumed by fear. You know, I think, I think we took COVID seriously, and and we took precautions, but we also were not going to be paralyzed by fear. And and to be able tomorrow, I'm actually the the stage is right outside my window. We're going to have a celebration mass tomorrow. In in an essence, this the end of the pandemic and opening up a new chapter uh, for where the Lord is leading us. So that that's obviously was a serious serious issue. But the other part is just providing an opportunity for young people. I think one of the things that they crave most is relationship and community. So making sure that we provide an an environment where young people can come together, they can be challenged in in their intellectual endeavors, but then they can do that in a community that is faith-based. Christ is in the center. The beauty of the church is proclaimed. So that's, I mean, I've got, there there are days that are really, really difficult, and there are days that are stressful, but I'm just looking out my window right now, and I'm seeing young people walk back and forth to class, and it's a beautiful spring day. It's it's a great blessing to be able to be a part of this. On the one hand, Father, you, you have tremendous challenges, on the other hand, you have something that supports you that's, that I would think it's only a handful of university presidents have, which is a full, a full embrace of, of the Catholic, of our Catholic faith and, and our Catholic values and our beautiful philosophy that is, that is so yeah. placed on truth. Most people don't have this who are in your exalted position, Father. No, I, and that's why, again, I'm so blessed. To be, you know, to be the president of a university, but to be a president of this Franciscan Catholic University, where we have a theology department, philosophy, and professors that that embrace the truth and the beauty of the church. We have four masses a day on weekdays that are the chapel, the kids. You know, I, the, the the mass I'm always most impressive is 6:30 in the morning. All right, you're on a college campus and you go to mass at 6:30 in the morning, and you find a couple hundred kids <laughs> on the mass before they go to class. I mean. I get to be a part of that. I'm I'm so, so blessed and, and humbled by our faculty and our staff and our students. I really am. Well, Father, may, may God continue to bless your work. And thank you for, for being so brave and penning that piece in USA Today. Our listeners can, can find it. 
um, under his name, Dave Pavanka, and and may God continue to help you in this in this great charge that he gave you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to spend some time with you. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the Rizmo of Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. The fourth Sunday of Easter each year is called Good Shepherd Sunday, because on this day the Church focuses on a part of the 10th chapter of St. John's Gospel, in which Jesus reveals the relationship he wants to have with each of his faithful followers. Jesus says about himself, I am the Good Shepherd, and indicates how he shepherds us. His faithful followers respond to him with the words of Psalm 100 we'll hear this Sunday. We are his people, the sheep of his flock. With the more famous words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I want, I lack for nothing. We mark this truth in the heart of the Easter season each year. Because it is the heart of our Easter joy. With the risen Lord Jesus our shepherd, we truly have it all. Throughout the Good Shepherd discourse, Jesus shows us how he seeks to relate to us. We can focus on six ways. First, he calls his own sheep by name, and the sheep hear and recognize his voice. Jesus wants to have a personal relationship with each of us. He knows us. He cares about us. Good sheep of the Good Shepherd enter into this mind-blowing I-thou relationship with Jesus, responding to his call and calling out to him by name in return. Second, the Good Shepherd guides or leads us. He tells us he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. He goes ahead of them and they follow him. As Psalm 23 says, he leads us in right paths for his namesake. He takes us besides the refreshing waters of baptism and toward the verdant pastures of heaven. He wants to lead us on a journey, a true adventure, a life-giving pilgrimage. He who is the way doesn't merely point out that path, but accompanies us along it. Good sheep follow the good shepherd's guidance and walk in his ways. Third, he feeds us. He prepares a table for us, seeking to feed us in every way he knows we need. He feeds us materially as he gives us today our daily bread. He feeds our souls with his word. For not on bread alone does man live, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. He feeds us ultimately on his own body and blood in the Eucharist, the food of everlasting life. Good sheep are not only grateful for this threefold nutrition, but hunger for it. Fourth, the Good Shepherd protects us. Jesus tells us very clearly that there are thieves and marauders who are seeking to fleece, milk, kill, cook, and consume us. Against those who only come to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus sets himself as our protector, as the gate to the sheepfold, so that essentially in order to get to us, they first need to go through him. He leaves the 99 behind and comes after us when we're in danger. No one can take them out of my hand, he promises. Good sheep of the good shepherd stay in Jesus' powerful, strong, protective hands. Fifth, he freely gives his life for us. He tells us the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. No one takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. The good shepherd's protection goes so far as to die so that we might live. This is why we can act on his words, be not afraid. That's why Psalm 23 exclaims, Even though I walk in the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for he is at my side with his rod and his staff to comfort me. Lastly, the Good Shepherd says, I give them eternal life. He seeks to lead us to the eternal sheepfold, to the verdant pastures where he has set a table before us and desires to give us everlasting repose. Good, shepherd of the, good sheep of the Good Shepherd have a deep hunger for heaven, to be with the Good Shepherd and his other sheep forever. So the Good Shepherd wants to enter in a lifelong existential dialogue with each of us as he calls, leads, feeds, protects, and gives his life for us so that we might have eternal life. What a consequential conversation that existential dialogue is. And in doing so, the Good Shepherd seeks to transform us, good sheep, into good shepherds of others, who care for others personally, who call them for God, who guide them in the Lord's path, who nourish them, protect them, even give their life for them so that they might come to know Jesus and receive from him the gift of eternal life and love. We saw this last week in Jesus' beautiful dialogue with St. Simon Peter, when after Jesus asked him three times whether he loved him, 
Jesus replied, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Simon Peter's love for Jesus would be expressed in how he cared for and protected the good shepherd's beloved sheep. One application of good sheep becoming good shepherds is meant to be in the priesthood, which is why every year since 1963, the church has celebrated on Good Shepherd Sunday the World Day of Prayer for Vocations, so that priests and bishops may indeed be shepherds after the good shepherd's heart. So this weekend we pray in particular way for the 59th year in a row for all those who have been ordained. But another application quite timely for this Sunday is the shepherdly love of mothers. On Mother's Day, we pray for mothers living and deceased, giving thanks to God for them, and giving thanks to them directly for all of the ways that they have loved us through the years. The work of mothers is an extension of Jesus' shepherdly care. Moms care for their children with personal love, giving and calling them by name, helping them to grow in their personal identity as someone loved and cherished. Moms, like the Good Shepherd, feed their children through the umbilical cord during the most vulnerable stage of human existence, with food from their own bodies after birth, and then thereafter with so many thousands of meals lovingly prepared. They also feed their children through breastfeeding them with the faith, nourishing their kids by means of their own faith, carefully digested and given to them in ways children can consume. Mothers also guide their children along the moral path. They're the first ones to teach their children to pray, to know the difference between right and wrong, to help their children learn how to discern Jesus' voice calling them to follow him. Moms also protect their children. They protect them in the womb. They protect them from bad influence. They protect them even from truths that the children are not yet fully ready to handle. Moms give their lives for their children, just as the Good Shepherd does, sacrificing their own personal pursuits to help their children succeed. Even the most petite moms become mama bears when their children's lives are at stake. Lastly, moms' love for their children extends into eternity. So they seek to help their kids recognizing, recognize that their sons and daughters of the Eternal Father called to live together in God's family. This Sunday, we praise moms for all these ways in which they love with the love of the Good Shepherd. Their witness to shepherdly maternal love is needed now more than ever because we're living in an age in which our culture so often denigrates motherhood by those who tragically pretend that female fulfillment must involve the ability to flee from motherhood through avoiding maternity through the use of contraception or more notoriously if they've already conceived a child and become a mom through the practice of abortion which transform doctors into wolves and mothers into those who would allow the wolves to attack the precious lambs growing within them. Jesus in the Good Shepherd Discourse says that he has come so that they may have life and have it to the full. Good shepherds, nourish and protect this life. And all of us in the church, men and women, young and old, have a duty to defend life in the womb, to care for, feed, guide, protect, and sacrifice for women in vulnerable stages of life, especially in pregnancy, from the thieves and marauders, both human and diabolical, who seek to urge them to destroy rather than nourish and cherish the life they've conceived. Earlier this week, as you know, was leaked the draft opinion of the Dobbs decision, which if followed through upon would finally overturn Roe v. Wade and the regime that made abortion legal in every state in every stage of pregnancy. This decision by the Supreme Court would be a huge step forward and we continue to pray for its successful outcome. But at the same time, the Dobbs decision would be a huge challenge for us to assure that women in vulnerable situations tempted to take the life of their child growing within know that they have the resources necessary to choose life. On this Good Shepherd Sunday, Jesus wants to help all mothers in their sweet and challenging vocation to be good shepherds for their children, to help all of us protect not only moms but future moms, and also the gift and the beauty of motherhood in a culture in which many marauders are trying to rob us of this appreciation and take the lives of the most precious gift moms will ever have. Jesus is the good shepherd who will never leave his flock untended, continues to care for, feed, lead, protect, and lay down his life for us so that we might have life to the full. So we prepare to listen to the good shepherd's voice speaking to us this Sunday. We ask him to make us grateful for the table he has prepared for us, for the priesthood that uniquely makes this great banquet of life possible, for the mothers and grandmothers who love us, 
according to the Good Shepherd, Shepherdly Heart. God bless all of you, and in a special way, God bless our mothers. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 